Episode 7, The Vermin Shall Inherit the Earth. Welcome to the story engine. We've come a long way in our tale. We began with Rome's humble beginnings. Settlers on the banks of big water, spreading their weapons and tools into the darkness. They have conquered great civilizations and wretched savages alike brought them into the great Roman Empire. But no star can shine forever, dear listener. And as Rome's light dims, its borders start to crumble, and the great empire, inch by inch, is becoming consumed by barbarian hordes. One such horde, the Huns, the very worst they've ever seen, and it now camps an army of murderous horsemen their bellies fat with the spoils of the path of destruction that smolders in their wake. Roman city after Roman city is destroyed like wildfire as these barbarians advance. But Rome is not dead yet. Attila, the vicious leader of these brutes, knows it well, and he's impatient for Rome's response. When we find him, Attila's face is lit by a single flickering candle, the only light in a black felt tent where he sits across from a cloak and fortune teller who tinkers with a bit of bone and cups of blood and entrails. Speak, priest! Enough of this nonsense! What do the gods say? The priest continues in a daze rocking back and forth, chanting in a strange tongue. After a moment of this, he slowly extends his palm outward with a grunt. Attila produces a gold coin and slaps it down on the palm, the profile of the great boy leader gleaming in dim light. I see much blood in your future, mutters the priest in a mystical voice. The blood of brothers see kingdoms fall, and from the ashes, one will take all. Ha! snorts Attila. I don't need a priest to tell me that. I need the gods to tell me who they favor. Who shall win in this battle against Aetius? Defeats from the future. Victories from the past. One will have their first, and one will have their last. Enough of these riddles, priest! scowls Attila. Tell me about the battle. Who is the greater warrior? have but one more thing to say, mutters the priest. Brother fights brother, warriors compared. But the victor shall be murdered, 
and the vanquished shall be spared. What nonsense is this? cries Attila. I came here for answers. I seek the truth. There is no more, says the priest quietly, as the flickering glow of the candle gently dims to darkness. Speak, priest! I shall have no more of these riddles. Attila rises to his feet in a rage. Do you forget who I am? I am Attila, ruler of the Huns, destroyer of cities, destroyer of armies, commander of the greatest warriors ever to ride, ruler of every place I go, and I command you to speak. <laughs> the priest laughs quietly under his breath. But you do not command the gods. You do not command the fates. Without a word, Attila draws his weapon, and a single slice bludgeons the priest where he sits. With his blood-splattered cloak, he wipes his sword and slides it slowly back into its scabbard. Throwing the flap of the tent open, he bathes the murder scene with the blazing Gaulish daylight. His army of warriors and the tens of thousands are waiting in the surrounding acres as far as the eye can see, and they rise to attention as he steps out of the tent. I have met with the gods, my warriors! He shouts into the wind. His bloody fingers grip the priest's hair as his mangled head dangles by his side. And of our fate, they speak nothing but rhymes and riddles. He dumps the head into the dust before him. But this time, I have spoken to the gods. <laughs> and I've told them that true warriors are masters of their own destiny. We are nothing more than ripples in the water, echoes in the wind. And if I am an echo, then it shall be rolling thunder. I shall be the screams that haunt the nightmares of our enemies. I shall be the ripples of a thousand leviathans raging and ravaging the mountains. To the warrior, there is no fate. There is only war! The men roar in unison to their war cry. And soon, the army is once again on the move, riding south in a dark horde, blackening the earth as they pass, leaving a trail of smoldering towns and broken lives. Not a beast, soul, nor blade of grass is left in their wake. But to Attila, there is but one goal face his brother, his mortal enemy, Aetius, in battle, and to settle this contest once and for all. It will not be long before they meet. But before they do, dear listener, we shall check on our old friends, Geyseric, king of the Vandals, greeting his son Hunneric in their new home, 
the magnificent fortified port of Carthage as his flotilla of warships and trading vessels arrives. What news of Rome, boy? says Geyseric in a warm embrace. Not good, father, replies Hunneric. There is so much toil and uncertainty in the court at Rome that I felt it best to return to the safety of Carthage. You must have heard by now of the Hunnish invasion. News has come of Gaul being destroyed and looted in the wake of an enraged Attila. Bit of a falling out with Aetius, I'm guessing. The offended party this time is none other than the great boy leader himself. It seems the women in the family would like to wear the crown. Honoria tried to show her brother that if she's to marry a barbarian to save Rome, it shall be the one of her choosing. <laughs> and now Attila would like to collect his prize, laughs Geyseric. I must say, though, the great boy leader has finally taken the reins. He's no longer a boy, and he must take control of what is his. But he has left the court too unsafe. I had to leave for my own sake. And so, what of this problem with the Huns? inquires Geyseric on a serious note. For now, every passing day gives news of another city burned and looted in Ortilla's wrath. But if Aetius cannot stop him, this could be very bad for Rome. Mm, and bad for business, interjects Geyseric. Fewer mouths to feed, fewer coins to count. He gazes out to the sea in a moment of reflection. I do hope Attila will leave something behind for us. And so, dear listener, we leave Geyseric to his thoughts, though we think these thoughts ourselves, and travel across big water to Gaul, where, in a wide clearing that breaks from the eastern and western road, Aetius rides away from his men and waits alone in the morning mist as his horse snorts and grunts impatiently. Moments later, from the mist, he finds himself face to face with Theodoric, king of the Goths. He is flanked by princes and kings of the Franci, the Riparii, the Soromatonis, the Aramocorians, the Liticani, the Burgundians, and the Saxons. Aetius knows them well from on and off the battlefield. But by their helmets, face paint, and war horse, they come with their armies that day. Is that all the force that Rome can muster these days? laughs Theodoric. I hope we are not to rely on you alone to protect us from these Huns. The men share his laugh. This is no laughing matter, Theodoric, replies Aetius. We all know what it is to rule, and I know we have had our differences. But we must all make alliances where we must. And now Rome needs your help. To preserve Rome, I've rode his armies against you. And to preserve Rome, we must now ride our armies against him. Only this time, Theodoric interrupts, do not fight 
to preserve Rome. This time, we fight for our own lands. Rome no longer protects us, and Rome shall no longer use us as fodder. This battle is for me to command, says Aetius sternly. Join me or fight him alone. Ah, believe me, Aetius, this battle is not yours to fight alone. You forget that these are the same Huns that once banished us from our homeland, and now they threaten us again. And if you want the best out of a Goth, you will let him defend what is his and be led by his own king into battle. Theodoric descends from his horse and stands before Aetius. Attila comes to us with the most powerful army the world has ever seen. But it will not be the first powerful army to be defeated. To beat him, you must take a page from Hannibal Barca himself. And to do so, we must join together. Aetius dismounts and stands eye to eye with the Goth. Whatever the outcome, Aetius, once this battle has been fought, the lands that we own are the kingdom of the Goths, and they shall no longer be Rome. Well, it looks like Rome has no choice in the matter, replies Aetius. Sick Gloria Transit, my old friend. He takes Theodoric's outstretched hands, looking him firmly in the eye. Tell me of your plan. Theodoric kneels down and sticks the point of his knife into the dirt. Two days north of here, we will come upon his army. With a few foot soldiers and archers, the bulk of his men are light horsemen who can serve as both archers and fighting force. For this, we want an open pitch to maneuver. Begins to draw a crude map of the ground between them. The only place between us and them suitable for such a battle is the plain of Catalan, here. His army will gain it from the north, and we shall have our camp here at the foot of the hill that flanks it to the west. I know exactly where he will set up his force, replies Aetius. He will use a brazen tactic of charging a small force to the center of our ranks to draw fire. Then, feigning retreat, he will encircle the pursuing foot soldiers. That's where we come in, grins Theodoric. When they are massed in the field, my men shall appear from the western hill and ambush his flank. He will then turn his horses to fight us, but we will have the higher ground. The bulk of the ground force will push towards the main thrust. It worked for Hannibal at Cannae, says Aetius. It may even work for us. Right now, Attila is busy ravaging the cities of Gaul for their plunder. Theodoric looks to Aetius. We must find a way to draw him to this valley. He will go there if I'm there, smiles Aetius. He did not come all this way just to conquer Gaul. It's me he wants. Well, it's us he's going to get, laughs Theodoric. This will be a battle between the past and the future, and destiny will take its course. And so we have it, dear listener. The future of the world is about to be decided. Aetius knows it. Theodoric knows it. Attila knows it. 
Even the great boy leader who sits in the splendor of his court at Rome knows it. The decisive battle between the greatest army ever raised and the greatest empire to ever rule shall be swayed by the fickle alliance of the poor displaced tribes of settlers who shall inherit the earth. Let us go there now, to the plain of Catalan, where Aetius has set up his force of foot soldiers and archers in neat formations. They are organized into rows of spearmen, archers, light cavalry and infantry, ready for the onslaught ahead. Aetius is busy inspecting his ranks and barking orders, all with a careful eye downrange where the horizon is slowly darkening with the rumble of a thousand horses. We, of course, have a much better view from where Theodoric and his Goths are hiding behind the crest. Their helmets and mail are woven into mud and branches to blend into the hillside. Each of his men, hungrily brandishing his longsword, and wooden shield. Below them, they can see Attila's vast cavalry taking position. The front lines are a volatile mass of man and beast, and for miles behind are the camp followers pulling wagon trails of plunder, food, horses, and the very wives and children of these wandering savages. War and migration such a part of these Huns' daily life that three generations of their families accompany them on campaigns. Once the men are in position, Aetius rides out and addresses them one last time. Men of Rome! Let us not forget, even for a moment, who we are! And what is at stake here? We are Romans! Our strength, our power, is unity. We are strongest when we hold the line. One break in the line, one break, and we lose everything. One of us breaks. We all break. That is Rome. Rome is in each of us. Rome is in all of us. Today, we are all what stands between civilization and savagery. In a moment, we shall live in eternity. What gave us life, we shall preserve to the death. We are Romans. We are wrong! With these words still hanging in the air, the men turn their heads to the field where Attila leader of the Huns, rides out alone upon his battle mount. He is draped in the finest armor, his head adorned in a spiked helmet with flaps flowing into finely woven cloak. 
he stops his horse defiantly, just shy of Rome's arches' range. He shouts chillingly into the wind. Atheos! Atheos! He calls out again louder than before. Atheos! How did it come to this, my brother? These words echo about the great plain. Or are you not my brother? Did we not ride together as brothers? Did my father not once take you into his home as his son? And this is how you repay me? This is how Rome repays me? The wind blows his words into the mist. And so you will not have me in your house! Me! The king of the hands! The greatest conqueror that ever lived! One hundred thousand warriors at my command! You will take a vandal like Geyseric and his sons! A scoundrel! A pity thief of a man! into your home. The great boy leader will take that coward into his house. He will have him marry his own kin. The womb and the bloodlines of the emperors of Rome to that foul rascal. But not to the greatest warrior on earth. Not your own brother! Then I am not your brother, Aetius! No more! And I shall take what's mine! At this, he unsheaths his sword and points it towards the Roman lines. This is met with a volley of Roman arrows landing at his horse's feet. The air then fills with the rumble of a stampede, and emerging from the mist behind him, storms forth a massive hunter's assault. Aetius responds to the charge with another furious volley of arrows. His infantrymen then raise their shields in a phalanx and creep slowly forward to meet the wave. From behind the lines, Roman siege engines launch a deadly seasoning ballista in the form of flaming shafts and shot into the confusion. The horde is quickly engaged in a close melee of beast and man. But just as Attila orders his west flank to encircle the tangled maelstrom, Theodoric and his army of Gothic warriors descend upon the Hunnish ranks in a fury. The mighty horsemen are thrown off balance and struggle to gain the upper hand as a rain of arrows falls upon them from the hillside. Attila, seeing this ambush, recoils in horror. What has become of my right flank? He turns to his rear guard. Take the hilltop at all cost! But while his horsemen desperately fight to gain the high ground, Aetius' infantry pushes forth 
leaving a gap for the cavalry to make a daring charge. When Attila sees his ranks being broken, and with the vision that perhaps the priest's prophecy might come true, he desperately begins to build a funeral pile from the debris and prepares his own suicide. From atop a crude mount of saddles, broken spears and wagons, Attila raises a burning torch in the air. Come for me, Aetius! You will never have me alive! I should rather leave you my burning corpse! As Aetius makes his charge towards the Hunnish camp, he sees Attila atop his funeral heap and sees the crazed look as their gazes meet. In that moment, Aetius finds in his eyes the anguish that he has caused in his oldest and dearest friend, the betrayal that he feels for the one he so dearly loves, his brother in arms, his brother in heart. And he calls for his riders to heal, turning his force around to relieve the Gothic warriors on the hillside. Attila watches in dismay as Aetius circles his horsemen from the rear and scatters their ranks, slaughtering them as he goes, and he is left atop his pile of sticks to watch as his army is crushed. And so the prophecy comes true. Brother fights brother. Warriors compared. But the victor shall be murdered. And the vanquish shall be spared. Aetius has managed to rescue the fate of Rome and spare the life of his oldest and only friend. And the victor, if it can be called a victory, is found dead on the battlefield. For the true hero of the day, the mighty Theodoric, king of the Goths, unifier of the tribes of Gaul, whose cunning strategy has held the day, is found dead, surrounded by his comrades, sword in hand drenched in the blood of his enemies, having died in battle to give his people a homeland. The battle has been so fierce that barely a goth is still standing to bury his king. And the Roman army that scarcely had a chance of victory that day could certainly never win another. For Attila, who now lives by the good graces of his sworn enemy, has turned the remains of his great army towards the city of Rome, where he no doubt intends to settle his accounts with the great leader himself. But Attila the Hun, conqueror, warrior, king, 
goes forth with little of the drive that he had had before the battle. His nights are spent in his tent, drinking himself into a stupor, only to be shocked awake from his bitter sleep with sweats and nightmares. Some weeks of this pass, and the Huns have in this time made their way over the Alps to Italy, until one day the wagon that carries Attila and his wives stops on the road east. Why have we stopped? grunts Attila to his driver. A scout kneels before him. There is a man on the road, my lord. He says he is the high priest of Rome, and he wishes to speak to you. How many men does he have in his company? asks Attila. He's alone, replies the scout. He has no mount, no guards, not even a servant. He stands alone in the road. Attila steps down from his carriage and walks towards the front of the convoy to meet his mysterious man himself. And sure enough, there in the road stands a figure in the impeccable dress of the man of God. He wears a conical hat and angelic white robes, gently shuffling a beaded necklace between his fingers. He raises his hands to the side. I come in peace. Attila steps forward to meet the man, sizing him up as he approaches. You come in peace, do you? <laughs> well, I do not. I have a score to settle with the great leader. He has a debt to pay me. Have you not collected it already? Replies the priest in a steady voice. Rome has little more to yield than what you have taken already. The coffers are emptied, the poor are starving, and the empire is sinking into ruin. If you take it, then you will inherit it and all its pestilence. Attila stands in wonder at the priest's words. Where's Aetius? he demands. Aetius is dead replies the priest. May his soul rest in peace. A grave look comes to Attila's face, and at the priest's words, tears begin to form in his eyes as his breathing gets deeper and deeper, until, in a rage, he pulls a dagger from his belt, and when the priest does not flinch, Attila turns the knife to his own face and cuts a gruesome gash in his own cheek. With blood pouring down his wrist, he screams a beastly scream in the priest's face and spits forth a spray of blood onto his perfect linens. And then he turns away, walks in silence back to his carriage. And the entire enterprise with all its wagons and horses and warriors and camp followers, he turns around and heads back to the Hunnish kingdom of Pannonia.
But what's this I hear, dear listener? Did the man of God not just say that Aetius was dead? Certainly not. For as we speak, he rides to the palace of the great leader. After the battle, he stayed to bury his friend and comrade, King Theodoric. And then he followed the path of misery that Attila left in his train all the way back to Rome. And now he must have an audience with Valentinian himself to report of the victory on the condition of his troops and on the very terrible state of the empire. He rides through crowded streets marked with poverty and starvation, refugees seeking the mercy of the empire. And then, within the relative safety of the palace, he rides past the last of the Praetorian Guard, barely able to hold back the mob of desperates. The halls of the court are abuzz with whispers and nervous suspicion, and Aetius dismounts. He is escorted through the great leader's private chambers. Come in, Aetius, my old friend. Valentinian greets him warmly. To what do I owe the honor of a private audience? inquires Aetius. With matters the way they are, we must speak the utmost discretion, replies Valentinian. There have been a lot of changes in my court in light of recent developments. For the better, I hope, continues Aetius politely. The times are changing, and I have learned an important lesson about statesmanship, Aetius, and of the nature of true power. He ushers Aetius into the next room. Come, Aetius. Would you not like to see my mother? Aetius steps forward cautiously into the room, and there laid out on a slab is the body of Placidia. I've learned that true power is in the mind, not the fist, and that the truly powerful live in peace and tranquility, while the savages wield the weapons. At that moment, Aetius feels the blade of a sword burst into his chest, and he falls to his knees in a pool of blood. You served Rome well, Aetius. You were the last of them. But we must look into the future. Yes, dear listener, the last of them indeed. Rome will never be the same again. And it is not long before it is all over. Without Aetius, and without the Roman army, there are no more wars to wage. Not even Attila survives the purge. Within a year, mysterious death takes him in his sleep and with him the warrior spirit of the Huns. Within a generation, the Huns have traded their horses for livestock and their sword and bow for plows. 
Without his protectors, Valentinian is soon murdered too, and by scoundrels unfit themselves for rule. And so Rome is plunged into chaos and despair. The last of the nobles, Honoria, fearing for her life, calls upon Rome's only hope, Hunneric, her betrothed, to rescue her from this sinking ship. Geyseric, from the peace and safety of Carthage, is more than happy to oblige. A hundred Carthaginian ships set sail for Rome, each loaded with a ballast of men to strip the last of Rome's wealth. The smug and impatient Geyseric, leading the march upon the gates of the Eternal City, and he, too, comes upon a man in the road. The high priest of Rome, in the same linens, in the same hat, standing in the road, alone. I come in peace, he says, arms outstretched. I too come in peace, friend, replies Geyseric with a smile. But does Rome have no more army? We need no army if you come in peace. We only ask that you spare the people of Rome and their homes. We have not come to Rome to destroy it. We are only here by invitation of Princess Honoria as her distinguished guest and protector. You shall treat me with kindness. I shall have you kiss my foot. Geyseric extends his foot towards the priest. Kiss my foot, priest. The high priest of Rome, without expression, kneels before the king of the Vandals and kisses him upon the foot. I bless you, my son, says the priest. For are we not of the same god? The same god? exclaims Geyseric. My god would never have his high priest kiss the foot of a scoundrel. My god is full of grace and absolution, replies the priest. He has forgiveness for king and thief alike. Or in this case, both, laughs Geyseric. He kicks the priest out of the way and continues riding. Don't worry, priest. I'll only take what's mine. I shall not bear Rome the horrors that it once put upon Carthage. I too have forgiveness. And Geyseric keeps his word. He sets his men free upon the ravages of Rome, smashing all that is left of its beauty and grace, looting all that shines, and stealing every morsel of riches the city could still yield, including the plunder from the Temple of Jerusalem, its most sacred artifact. And of course, there is the matter of the princess. She too is loaded into a Carthaginian ship most precious cargo, the womb of Roman nobility, to be married to the future Vandal King of Carthage. 
And what of Rome? asked the high priest. You are its ruler now. The people of Rome should make you their Caesar. What would I want with such a wretched place? replies Geyseric. Rome has nothing more that I need. Ours is the kingdom of Carthage. I leave Rome to the priests. On the sail home, Geyseric and Hunrick look out to the sea. Their new pastures, finally in the hands of its rightful rulers. And Geyseric takes the Barca ring from his finger and shows it to his son. We've done it, Hunrick. We have fulfilled Hannibal's vow to avenge Cartha and to take back Big Water. A legacy held in this ring passed through the generations. Finally, the legacy is complete. The very one passed from Hamilcar to his own son, Hannibal. And now it's for me to pass it on to you, my son. He presses the ring into his fist without ceremony, casts it into the sea. But we are men of our own making, Hunrick. We do not have Carthage by divine right or by inheritance. We rule our kingdom by our own doing. And we shall hold it for as long as we can. That is the Vandal way. That is what the future holds. The two men continue to look out to the sea and sail it to their home in the warm African sun. That's right, dear listener. When all the dust settles, big water is in the hands of the barbarians. New tribes, Carthage, the naval empire, the Phoenicians. And it's now in the hands of vandals. Gaul, the western reaches of big water, in the hands of Goths. The northern frontier, in the hands of a now very passive Hun. And Rome, don't worry about Rome. Rome will never die. The seven hills are under new management. They've gone corporate. Rome has learned a valuable lesson. For now, the masters of Rome are servants of God. And they let the savages wield the weapons while they live in peace, tranquility, and forgiveness. Because, dear listener, light will always conquer the savage darkness. Seven Hills knows this to be true, and we know this to be true. For if we are the light we wish to see into the darkness, and if we are the masters of the land, then we are all Rome. And if we are not, then we too, by hammer and blade, shall join their peace or die.
Thank you for listening to the Story Engine. If you've made it this far in the story, well, thanks for sticking with it. If you enjoyed this show, or if you have a terrible problem with it, go to our Facebook page, the Story Engine Podcast at Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. The story of Roman Carthage will continue soon. It's not over yet. We'll be back soon with a different Rome, only the same, and the same Carthage, only different. Be sure to go to our page and leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks for listening. I'm Tristan Verboven. This is the Story Engine.